0: you're listening to members of the jury the show that takes you straight into the trenches of justice where the passion players and consequences are real each episode we examine current events happening in the system from the battles in courtrooms to the streets demanding reform we bring those stories here to you the members of the jury because we aren't afraid to take it to the box. Welcome, members of the jury, to today's episode. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about the distinction between rehabilitation and punishment. And what I mean by that is how in the criminal justice system, when someone commits a crime and they're ultimately convicted, whether it be via plea deal or by jury trial, well, then they have to suffer consequences. And imposing those consequences, uh, one has to decide, are we strictly going to punish this individual or are we going to attempt to rehabilitate this individual? I come from the belief that the criminal justice system and its primary goals were to rehabilitate every individual. And in my experience, I've seen how different types of systems implement that concept of punishment versus re- rehabilitation differently. And I think one of the the biggest situations where that is on the forefront is when you look at the distinctions between how juvenile the juvenile criminal justice system works and how that is compared to the adult criminal justice system. The juvenile justice system, I think 100% puts rehabilitation first and focuses very lastly on how to actually punish these juveniles these children when they make these mistakes whereas an adult i think on the forefront is punishment and and what's sad is that sometimes these people who are find themselves in the adult system will just days before would have been in the juvenile system and so today we have a i have a guest with me who is on the front line he's in the trenches every single day working with these juvenile uh, justice and within the juvenile justice system. And so I'd like to welcome Javi uh, to the show. Javi, welcome to members of
1: the jury. And uh, thank you for coming today. Thank you. Thank you, sir. It's a pleasure to be on. uh, What is this, episode two? I I think I'm one of the original. I'm, I'm a founding member now. Does that count if I'm second in line? I think so.
0: Well, we, we consider you one of the first 12 in the box. But, you know, All like right. jurors,
1: you're always subject to
0: challenge. So we'll just have to see whether or not any peremptories happen out there. I'm, I'm but, expecting
1: a plaque or something in the mail. Well, we'll see. You know, some <laughs> judges do
0: give certificates. I don't know if we're there yet. But go ahead and uh, let the members of the jury know a little bit about
1: yourself, uh, what you currently are doing. Uh, Javier. I am a public defender. I've been a lawyer for about... Three years and a little change, all of them as a, as a PD. I did a, a year and a half or actually a year and, a, and like a month doing misdemeanor jury trials uh, with some some really dope attorneys that, that uh, fought alongside me. Uh, one of them was uh, you. You. Uh, you and me did our first couple trials together. That was, that was definitely fun. We've, we've been in the trenches together shouting out, you know what, no time waiver jury trials. Um, after that, I transitioned into the juvenile delinquency division at uh, the public defender's office where I've been for a year and, and a couple months. Uh, very big difference. Um, that's about it for me, uh, as far as my legal career. Um, but, you know, I'm uh Puerto Rican, born and raised, came out here for law school, said I was coming back to Puerto Rico after I graduated. But then I fell in with you crazy public defenders. Uh, and I've never, never even thought about leaving since I joined. So, yeah, that's that's me. What well, what would you
0: say that in in your experience has been kind of one of the drastic differences between working in the adult criminal justice system compared to the juvenile criminal justice system?
1: Well, I mean, it's, they're two totally different beasts. I mean, there's, there's differences in outcomes, of course, because we're, we're dealing with, with children. So obviously punishment is not supposed to be a guiding principle. Uh, when we're resolving cases in practice, you know, obviously we, we work in gray areas we're attorneys, um, a big difference and probably the, the biggest kind of smackdown with reality that I've had is I was coming off of doing misdemeanor jury trials where, you know, frankly, my biggest tool is that I am extra as hell. I am dramatic in front of a jury. I will sell you a story. Even if the law is not lining up with my argument, you will bet that the basic human characteristics that I'm presenting to you are going to make you want to find for my client. In juvenile, we don't have juries. It's just judges. The judge decides what facts did or did not happen based on the evidence presented. So that means all of the emotional pleas, all of the, you know, the, the people haven't met their burden those arguments kind of go out the window. It's it's the difference between playing chess against a really smart person and a computer. They're both hard, but when you're playing against the computer, there's no emotional appeal. There's no stress that you can count on from the other side. You just have to have your strategy. You have to have your defense. You have to have your case law. And there's no wiggle room.
0: I know that when, after you started Shortly after you started working in the the juvenile justice system and and we had a conversation, you were telling me how, like, kind of just like you were saying, like, the systems are so too different. And I think you were saying how, like, you know, when you were in the uh, dealing with adults, you know, and a case comes before any, you know, in a courtroom, it's kind of like the assumption is like, oh, this person fucked up. And now it's either up to the defense attorney to show maybe that they didn't or to minimize that effect. But the prosecution and the judge are, are looking to, at this person as if they they made a mistake and that they need to be punished. Whereas when you get cases across your desk in juvenile, as a collaborative court between you know yourselves, the prosecution and the and the judge, their initial response is like, "What? Why did this happen?" And, and, and almost in almost immediately, how can we prevent it from happening again in the future? Uh, would you say that's that's been your experience?
1: Absolutely. And and again, right, it's varying degrees. So if you were to talk about just the absolute differences between adult and juvenile, yes. In juvenile court, I'm having a lot more conversations with prosecutors about, you know, how do we set this kid up for success? You hear prosecutors when they're arguing for maybe terms of probation that we don't like. They're not you know, couching that in, we need to punish this minor. They're couching that in terms of we need to make sure we have an appropriate, like, we can't let this kid out because we need an appropriate plan for when he gets out. Or, you know, this custodial program, you know, jail, basically juvenile hall is needed for this child, for this reason that will benefit the child, as opposed to an adult court where, you know, it's been my experience, you get, you know, people with nonviolent drug possessions. And you have DA saying, well, he's gotten caught with heroin four other times. So I don't care that he's addicted to heroin. I care that he doesn't listen to what the judge says. Let's punish him and show him that he can't do whatever he wants. That's never a thing that I've heard in juvenile.
0: And you were saying that like, and I think because of that, that, that obviously changes the way in which negotiations
1: obviously take place in within a case, right? Well, absolutely. So right so the the biggest fight for us or at least in, in my practice has been uh as or you know as defense attorneys our biggest fight is it isn't so much the charges is what do the charges translate to for the future of this minor right so in adult court you might see someone say okay well you'll dis if if a case has three counts right you'll dismiss one but we, the D.A and, and I will haggle over what the terms of probation should be, if there should be, you, know, 30 days of custody, no days of custody, if custody should be stayed, you know, those are all part of the negotiation before a client makes an admission, right? In juvenile, it doesn't really matter if the admission is to a misdemeanor or a felony provided that you know, both are sealable under the, the, the different types of, of welfare and institutions code sealing requirements. But the DA and I have very little or no ability really to set a condition of probation as part of a negotiation. The, the admission or we go to trial and we lose, whatever happens, all of that has to happen before we ever have any conversation about what this kid will or will not have to do.
0: And seeing here, that, that's, that's so crazy to me because, I you know, I know in my experience, there's been total, there's definitely been times where, like, me and the prosecution have come up with such almost like a detailed change of plea agreement, so to speak, that, like, the judge ultimately, and I've heard him say it, say, I just feel like a rubber stamp. Like, you're taking all of my discretion and sentencing authority kind of away from me because you guys have already essentially come to these terms via the agreement. And, like, that's not the way that I want to necessarily operate and, you know, but that's the way we've come to. And and a lot of that kind of shows how, you know, prosecution, the prosecutors ultimately have a little bit more power than the judges, you know, like, because most judges, when they see a change of plea come for them, they're going to accept it. And the terms of that sentence on the most part have been dictated by the prosecutor, not the judge, where it seems like in your experience, like, no, the judge retains all of their judicial discretion and sentencing powers uh, throughout the process.
1: Right. Well, I mean, yes, that is true. But you got to remember, we also have probation heavily involved, right? So the whole point of why a DA and I can't you know, create terms of probation before uh, an admission is because right after the admission is made, probation steps in they do what's called uh, a social study. And basically that means they interview, you know, the minor, the parents, the victims if necessary. They go look at this kid's school records, his attendance records, does he have extracurricular activities? Have there been psychological evaluations uh, or evaluations that have been made? They look at all of that. They have all of these equations that they use that frankly, I can't even understand half the time. And with that, they prepare, you know, a 10, 11 page report with recommendations of what they think would be appropriate terms for supervision or for probation. Because at the end of the day, they are the ones that are supervising this probationary period. But even then, it's not decided. They give that report to the judge.
0: And that's regardless of whether it's a misdemeanor or felony, right?
1: absolutely there it, it so
0: yes the scene well, I, I just realized i guess i just realized that in, in juvenile there's no such thing then as summary probation like there is an adult where the court is the court serves as the probation and they say we're not going to have anyone checking up on you we're not going to have anyone that you have to report to we're just going to tell you hey you have to do these conditions and if you do them cool if
1: not well then we can throw you back in jail well it's not common, right? I mean, or not that it's not common, but it's it's not the, the majority of the cases that I see, but there is such a thing as summary probation in juvenile delinquency. Got it's it. called probation to the court. That's one alternative, right? So basically it's the judge saying, I'm going to cut probation out of this. Typically we'll see that when a kid has like maybe one or two requirements that are outstanding. So he had to do 40 hours of community service before he'll be successfully terminated off probation. And he's only done 35, right? The other thing that we do, which is interesting, there's a welfare and institutions code that allows a minor to be supervised by the court without being declared a ward. That also implies that probation does not have the same authority that they would under traditional formal probation. But that the judge has to make a special finding that this is a minor who would benefit from this informal type of supervision. And again, it always comes back to the same thing. Is this the type of minor that would benefit from this? Is this the type of minor that needs this? And it's less based on, is this the type of case that would require this, right? We don't talk about the case, we talk about the minor. And that small change is, it might sound kind of nuanced, but it completely dictates the approach to how a, a case moves through the system.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I mean, I know you were just telling me too, recently, t- speaking about how a case moves through the system, I think that's a really great segue point that you were actually telling me that recently, uh, you and your organizations actually just became some of the uh, first ever participants in a new way in which cases might operate through a system. Is that right?
1: Uh, well, yeah, so that's true. Um and again I'm I am by no means an authority on this. I think we said it at the beginning. I've been a lawyer for 3 years, which sounds like I should know a lot and I feel like if objectively I looked, I have learned a lot in those years. But when you're talking about people that have been practicing law for 30 years and and you know kind of dictate the way that the criminal justice system makes these changes that now everybody wants to see, I really don't know anything. But putting that aside, um yes. So I I work in a county that was selected to basically run a pilot program. So the Center for Juvenile Justice, let me make sure I'm saying that right. Yes, so it's the Center for Juvenile Justice Reform. So this is a program out of Georgetown University, and and their premise was very simple, right? So we all agree that, that there's a difference between adults and juveniles and that we need to prioritize helping these kids a not be offenders in the future because we know what happens in adult court uh, and B what is lacking in these children's lives that either a drives them to, to commit criminal offenses or B uh, is not giving them the support that they need and the encouragement that they need to be productive successful members of our society so they're they basically started from zero they're like let's rebuild it from the ground up theoretically right? So they created all of these different models for how juvenile delinquency courts should be run. And then after they did that, they selected a number of states and counties to basically um, implement this process or implement this practice model. Now, where I work, we're actually the first county, rather, the probation department in my county was selected to basically have a contract with Georgetown University. And they're working with probation to implement this new, this new process. And what probation turned around and did, which was very cool, is they brought in what they call all the, the stakeholders in the juvenile delinquency courts. So that means the, the bench, the judges, the the prosecutors, the district attorney's office, and the public defender's office, as well as some members of the private bar. The The logic behind this is, look, we're all going to work this system together. It either works or it fails with us. Um, so it hasn't been implemented yet because like everything else uh, in a bureaucracy, there's a lot of back and forth. There's a lot of, you know, is this the best way to serve it? And obviously, intelligent people will disagree. That's the, the beauty of having smart people running all of these departments is they don't always think the best thing is the same thing. Um, but yeah, as far as, as what the, the, the new model that we're trying to incorporate, the name for it is the youth in custody practice model. Uh, and it basically focuses on if a, if a kid, a minor is arrested, for an offense, and they're in juvenile hall, what do we need to do from from minute number one, all the way up until the day that that minor returns into society to make sure that this never happens again. And it, you know, obviously, it's, it's very complicated, and it requires a lot of steps. uh, But it's a very different way of rethinking how we do criminal justice and specifically juvenile justice.
0: Well, I hope that really works out. That sounds like a, an amazing program and hopefully with the right foundational steps, that might be able to be implemented at an, at an adult level as well. You know, I know one of the big distinctions too, and, and prior to uh, today, you know, we've had the conversations that I think it, that exists in the juvenile realm that uh, doesn't exist in the adult realm, which is, there's movements to kind of push for, is that the aspect of bail. You know, in the adult court, you get charged with certain offenses that have a specific uh, nominal figure attached that if, you know, you get booked into custody, you have bail set and you have an opportunity to get released on your own recognizance or even potentially supervised. But at the end of the day, if that gets denied and you're sentenced, you know, to pretrial detainment and you're, you know, don't have that high level of incomes, you're, you're ultimately sitting in custody until who knows when. And I know that the juvenile system, they don't have bail, right? They work on more of a kind of merit based system, which ultimately if the bail system was to be abolished, the the adult court would take something, uh, take up something similar. So what's been your experience in kind of deal in, in operating now in kind of a, a no
1: bail system? <laughs> um, yeah, it's not my favorite thing. Uh, mostly because like, you know, a judge is deciding. So again, in adult court, obviously, a judge is determining a bail amount, except unless it's, you know, very serious murder charges or something to that effect where a judge is imposing a a no bail hold. Um, Absent that, right, the judge is really just deciding how much money does this person have to pay? Like how much is enough to, you know, really make them understand that they need to A, stay out of trouble and B, come back to court. Uh, that system just kind of by its very definition does not work in juvenile because kids don't have money. Uh, they don't have jobs. The kids that do have money, they have money because of their parents. So you could set that bail at, you know, $5 or $5,000. That kid didn't work a job to pay for it. Or their parents did. And and most of the kids that we see that are coming before the court, uh, in in juvenile delinquency, or juvenile justice, which is rather the name I should be using, uh, you know, they either a don't really have that parental support, or they don't listen to their parents. So money really does not play a, a significant role in whether these kids are going to follow the rules or not. So that necessitates the judge to kind of make a value based decision: is this a kid that a is is going to listen to what I say? Is he going to be safe? Is the community going to be safe? And is he going to come back to court? The biggest problem that I have is that we're dealing in absolutes with very little information. When I get a kid who's just been arrested and charged, I don't have a police report. You know, I don't have a a psychological evaluation of this kid. I got a two-page report from probation saying, you know, he did this. I we don't know what to do, so let's be safe rather than sorry and keep him detained.
0: Well are the laws are the laws for pretrial detainment in juvenile the same or similar to the ones in an adult where, you know, basically you have to yeah, you same have factors. to if you have someone detained, you gotta get them before judge within, you know, by law it's like forty eight hours, but in practice it normally amounts to like seventy two because of depending when you were booked in or they don't account weekends and stuff like that. So you're saying they they still have to abide by that. But you, most of the times you're not even given
1: the police report in that situation. Correct. We don't get the police reports ahead of time. And the reason for that is a lot of the time we, we haven't been appointed prior to, to that initial detention hearing. And juvenile de- justice is 100 percent confidential. Right. So we can't get our hands on those police reports until either A, we, the public defender's office is presumed to be the the working attorney, um, but in practice, you know, within a day or two, we're not going to have the, the DA's office sending police reports to cases that were never going to work.
0: If at the detention hearing a uh, release is denied and then you subsequently get the police report that allows you to, you know, put shed more light on the situation, does that allow for then a, a renewal at least of to the judge to ask
1: for release you can argue for a changed circumstance like you do in adult court of course um but you know you're coming off against the the very realistic although often acknowledged or often not acknowledged issue that judges are very hard pressed to overturn each other you know if a judge denied a release three days ago and then you got your hands on the police report and you're like my kid isn't even is barely ID'd here, or this ID is BS. Look at all these valid arguments that I have. You're gonna have a very difficult time because you're arguing the facts to a judge, and they're gonna tell you for purposes, you know, you know the the song and dance, for purposes of bail, I have to assume that he did this regardless of evidentiary issues. And now on top of that, I have to basically say on the record, the judge, my colleague who just saw this case three days ago is wrong and I'm going to go ahead and reverse his decision. They're not inclined to do that. I mean, I don't love it, man, especially because there's so little information at that original detention report, right? The DA obviously has the police reports. Right. From the, from, from the get go. Right. Which is a thing that to me is it's funny, but it's more infuriating than funny is and I know you've probably been through this too, you get a, an original police report, in your case, adult, or I get a, a detention report in juvenile, and I go, there's a on-its-face issue here, and I'm going to use that to my advantage for my client to go home. And you get up there in front of the judge, and you argue it, and then you hear the DA go, well, this other piece of evidence that we haven't disclosed yet completely refutes that and it's terrible for this case and here you go judge take it as true we'll make sure to give it over to the defense team at our convenience like that part is right it's frustrating and but you're basically stuck arguing against something you don't know um and you all we always make the same argument and it never works well you know if the people are privy to information that i'm not i certainly would appreciate it and the judge is gonna say well i I understand how you feel, but I'm going to take them at their word and your clients staying in.
0: Yeah. As we, as we wrap up, Javi, let me ask you this. You know, when we, when we started, we talked about how, you know, definitely the distinctions between juvenile court and adult court kind of embody the distinction between focusing on rehabilitation versus punishment. And obviously with the goal of that is to minimize recidivism and, you know, continual you know, as I like to say, having a revolving door in the system. Do you feel that ultimately by focusing on rehabilitation first, juvenile justice, the juvenile justice system does a good job of minimizing recidivism and, and keeping those juveniles from coming back
1: and being repeat offenders? I believe that fully. I mean, the the thing about juvenile justice. So let me just say this. When I started working juvenile, we were calling it the juvenile delinquency department of the public defender's office, right? We are, or not we, but you know, the people above me and and just kind of the entire team and, and community at that deal with juveniles, they're saying, you know, we don't even want to call this delinquency. This is juvenile justice, because we're not just looking for justice to victims. We're looking for justice for, for minors who, you know, don't benefit from parental support or community support or support in their schools. It's about equity, right? It's about making sure that kids have the tools to be successful in the future. And that necessarily means that when a kid commits a crime, we need to look past that, right? We can't just look at the charges and say, well, this kid's fucking up. We need to punish him. We need to start asking really hard questions. I mean, they're not hard for me. I'm a defense attorney, but really hard questions from the bench and the DA of why did this happen? You know, what led this kid to this decision? And when we start having conversations like that, maybe you have a serious felony where really the only thing the kid needs is a mentor, you know? Or maybe you have a kid who only committed a, a misdemeanor petty theft, but the level of undiagnosed psychological conditions and, and, and the maybe abuse that he's suffering at home necessitate that, you know, we got to put this kid in a different environment where he can flourish, And those are the types of conversations that I really enjoy about juvenile justice. And I think that those are exactly the types of conversations that reduce recidivism, not how do we punish someone for fucking up, but how do we give someone the tools for them to decide that they're not going to fuck up anymore?
0: I think that's a really key point, you know, because not everybody, you know, obviously, we love to live under the principle of all men are created equal, but we know not, not all men have the same tools available to them. And so... I think that by doing that, even if it is through that, that process of being in in the criminal justice system, like, so be it. I think that should always be the first focus. Well, we want to thank you so much for coming onto the show, Javi, you know, taking the time to take it to the box. Uh, we hope you come back, and, and we'd love to hear from you again.
1: Of course, buddy. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, members of the jury... That's our show, and I rest my case. Be sure to come back next episode as we take another matter to the box. If you're a fan of the show, go ahead and subscribe. You can also find us on social media at Members of the Jury. If you want to be a guest or have any feedback, be sure to email us at lhurstie at membersofthejurypod.com. The information in this podcast is provided as general reference work as a public service. The audience is advised to check for changes to current laws and to consult with a qualified attorney on any legal issue. The use of this material does not create an attorney-client privilege in any fashion with the podcast, the host, or the guest. This information is for educational purposes only, and no one affiliated with the podcast may be held liable for any decision made based on this information.